Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Ruby Rogues. I'm David Kamira, and today on our panel, we have John Epperson. Hello, everybody. Luke Stutters. Hello. And Valentina Stoll. Hey now. And so today we don't have a guest. We're just going to talk as a panel. And our topic of discussion is Ruby on Rails 7. And not just new features, but our experiences so far with either migrating a new, a older application from Rails 6 or something before to Rails 7, some of the new features around Hotwire and just how we have experienced them in a real world application outside of a simple to-do app. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv. And I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are gonna help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you wanna be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I wanna give you the resources that are gonna help you do that. We're gonna have career and leadership resources in there, and we're gonna be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. So who wants to get this ball rolling? I, for one, I guess I'll kick it off. I've been upgrading the Drift and Ruby website from Rails 6 to Rails 7. I've also been working on upgrading everything from UJS and TurboLinks over to Hotwire, so just Turbo and Stimulus. I was using Stimulus before, but it was just the standalone. Not that it really matters because it is what it is, but I'm now using it under the, quote, Hotwire umbrella. And then once I'm done with all that stuff, then I'll be moving from the Webpacker over to ES Build. How how different do you feel now, Dave, it's been? Uh... So overall, at a super high level elevator pitch, I found that going with Hotwire... And this is going to be a controversial statement, I know. But going with Hotwire is producing cleaner code. And I say that specifically coming from the experience with this upgrade process that I'm going through is that I have had a lot of different views within Drift and Ruby that were just rather large. And by using Turbo Frame Tags, moving some components or some views over into a separate controller action that has its own view has helped break up the application quite a bit into smaller, more maintainable chunks. So whenever I click on something to either refresh a part of the view, then just that turbo frame tag will get updated. Whereas before it was all kind of loaded into one single view page and then I used stimulus or I used action cable with some manual updates. Like when someone posted a comment or upvoted a comment, then it would just replace those specific parts. But now with Hotwire and Turbo Frame Tags, I'm able to simply just call on this particular view or this partial and use the broadcast feature from Turbo to broadcast updates to the page and to anyone who is described. So overall, high elevator pitch, Hotwire produces cleaner code. Just for clarification, is this cleaner code in comparison when you were using stimulus before or when you were using non-stimulus? Or, it, I mean, it kind of sounds like most of your cleaner code is in views, so it's irrelevant to stimulus. Yeah, I would say stimulus didn't really play too much of a part here because I had already back in, I think the Rails 5 app had brought in stimulus and started using that. So I was a pretty early adopter on my production app with using stimulus. And that in itself made a huge difference in the code. The front end was a lot more stable because it wasn't trying to run the same JavaScript thing that was globally accessible 
multiple times. So I think stimulus in itself helped organize the JavaScript a lot. It helped break it up into actual smaller components so that I'm only working within this small subset of code instead of one big large dumping ground of functions and stuff. Got it. Yep. Yeah. I I mean, my experience with stimulus was very, very similar, right? That allowed me to it met my expectation, right? Which is that I'm on a specific page. I kind of expect certain things to be on that page, not to be on a different page. And I want to react to things on that page. I don't want a bunch of other going on stuff or stuff going on. But then I also expect that if I like go to a different page and I add my widget, whatever it is, right, that stuff just works. And I I felt like stimulus really, really well fit that paradigm. It's a little bit our other solutions in JavaScript are not quite as awesome there. But yeah, so that fits my stimulus experiment experience. It sounds like you're saying that you had this app that had stimulus and basically just, you know, without the hotwire stuff, a bunch of views and things. And you're saying that by moving to hotwire, you gained a bunch on the the view writing side and all of that kind of stuff, not necessarily your JavaScript experience, I guess. Yes. Yeah, the views are a lot more concise now. They're easier to maintain by far. Have you used view components at all? And has your experience been similar? I'm not using view components in this project in particular. Yep. I do like the idea of view components, especially from a testing perspective. I think it really can help out with the testability and coverage. So you're Mm -hmm. also kind of testing your views now. But I haven't really brought that in. I think that might be a later project at one point. Cool. Yeah, I was just kind of curious if if you found it similar. (laughs) Yeah, one thing that I will say, when we're talking about a Rails upgrade, there's several different aspects around that. We have the actual application upgrade to get us from... I'm going to just assume Rails 6 to Rails 7. But then we have all of the new features that we get the benefit of with the upgrade. So I know that Rails 7 wasn't including Hotwire. It's something, I'm not sure if a new application brings it in. My template automatically adds it in. So, But anyways, all of this doesn't have to happen in one large commit or one large feature branch. So I'm going through the upgrade process and I first upgraded my application to Rails 7. I wanted to first get the code base upgraded and working on Rails 7 before I did anything else. And I deployed that into production to make sure that it's running stable for a while. So now that the application has been running stable with Rails 7, I'm now coming in and looking to see what I can do to get rid of UJS and then get rid of turbo links and that kind of stuff. So I'm breaking it up into several larger feature sets that I'm working on. And so I'm now, now that Rails 7 has been stable in production, I'm working on the conversion of removing UJS and turbo links in favor of turbo. And that's where I think that a lot of people just really don't talk about the amount of effort required to do that because, especially in my case, I was very heavily reliant on UJS. In my stimulus controllers and the actual views, doing the remote trues all over the place. And I think that we often neglect to mention that kind of effort that it takes to, one, identify all the different places that we're using this, but then also the kind of effort that it takes to then address each one of those issues because you are essentially breaking your application. So, Dave, how was your upgrade? Like, how well did it go just upgrading Rails itself? Is that pretty painless? I would say so. The one tool that I use for every Rails upgrade is railsdiff.org which is really awesome to see what your current version of Rails is and the target version of Rails that you want to go to. And it'll list out all of the different configuration file changes and stuff that were done from a new Rails application between the two. So I heavily rely on that to make sure that 
all of the different configurations that are being introduced or deprecated, then I'm taking those into consideration. A few years ago, I would say probably about three or four years ago now, I have removed as many gems as possible from my gem file to make it much, much tighter. So now I would say Drift Ruby only uses about six real gems outside of the default what Rails provides and outside of the default of what I would call, you know, acceptable. So things like the new Relic gem, I really wouldn't consider that adding something in because we're not really adding functionality. We're just doing monitoring or the Stripe gem for interacting with the Stripe API. But for one thing, like around device, that's bringing in functionality into my application that I could do myself, but I chose to use device instead. So that's kind of one of the six gems that I'm including. But gems like Friendly ID, I wasn't using half of the features of what Friendly ID was doing. I only cared about the pretty URLs that it generated. So an effort that I had a few years ago was to actually remove all of that kind of stuff that I didn't mind creating my own implementation and I didn't mind uh, taking on that technical debt. So with only having a few gems to have to actually worry about and deal with, the Rails upgrade process was actually pretty simple. I know I had one issue. I upgraded a, a Rails 6 to 7 app recently. And I'll often use the, uh, the stable branch just while I'm in upgrade mode. And uh, one thing I, one thing that caught me, it was pretty painless, except for this one case where uh, the two-string method, 2S, no longer takes a, an argument in Rails. So if you ever use like localization to like two-string a timestamp in a certain format to look it up by the locale, the, it, the method name changed. So it's now, I think, 2FS. <laughs> that one caught me by surprise. I don't know if you've run into any small quirks like that, too. I haven't run into that one in particular. I'm trying to think if I ran into any nuances. The one thing that I did find and I discovered, because this was a concern, when using a link, you could just add the format turbo stream to that link, and then it'll force that link to come over to your Rails application as a turbo stream, which you can get it working and it does exactly what you want, on your browser. But if you try to take that to a mobile device and you click on that link, it'll actually try to download the result. And so that was a little hiccup that I came across and I had to find a workaround to because that is not the user experience if someone is using your mobile version of the website that you want them to have. So that is a strange quirk. And I think I had suggested like, hey, just do a turbo stream instead. But what I ended up doing was creating a stimulus controller, which whenever you click on that link, it does a prevent default. And then it makes the turbo stream post back to the Rails application. Speaking of streams, have you tried out the uh, the new live controller send stream to stream uh, files that are, are getting generated? So I did use Action Controller Live many, many years ago where someone was creating a downloadable file and instead of first generating the file on my server and then sending it to them, I used Action Controller Live to basically stream the download to them as it was getting generated. And I ended up taking that functionality out simply because that would tie up one of my worker threads. So... Puma wasn't able to then serve another request on that same thread. And you get 10 users trying to download or stream download the same file or different files. And now all of a sudden, your website's like inaccessible if you only have 10 threads or 10 worker threads serving requests. So I really don't like a long living request like that. I don't know if what you're referring to has changed its implementation, if it's now using WebSockets or something else. Can you speak more about it? I only read the headline. <laughs> <laughs> I think this maybe more ties into the you know active storage stuff for, for streaming files that, oh no, this says 
Yeah, this says any file. <laughs> so it looks like it's just streaming the actual file over HTTP2. I'll, I'll leave a note. It's the, uh, the send stream from the Action Controller live. Have you yeah, I moved, think it's worth looking into. Have you moved to using import maps yet, Dave? I'm not a big fan of import maps. And, I mean, I guess, let me rephrase. I'm a huge fan of import maps and the functionality that it can provide of not having to have a separate service, JavaScript service or Node service, running, compiling my JavaScript files on every send. I think it's super cool from that perspective. But I think for existing applications, the effort and work required to move over to that is much larger than what I would want to handle right now. So I think ES build with uh, or from the JS bundling is a great way to go if you're upgrading existing Rails applications. And if you like the Webpacker era of Rails, or at least all the functionality that it brings with being able to use Yarn to include packages, then I think ES Build is kind of the perfect compromise there where you get all the, quote, benefits that we saw with Webpacker coming from the old way of using your vendor JavaScripts to a new modern way where it's a lot easier to manage. So right now, um, my plan is to go with ES build. I did try out the the CSS portion of the, of the Rails generator, which worked out really great for just like adding Bootstrap to a new project. <laughs> if if you don't really care about configuring Webpack or what you're bundling, if, even if you're just not using JavaScript for a project, just adding bootstrap or tailwinds or, or any number of these was just like a, a flag and it would it worked right out of the box it was pretty incredible yeah and it's a lot easier now especially since bootstrap 5 doesn't rely on jquery so you're not having to bring in a whole bunch of extra dependencies for your app oh my gosh how much easier that has made life yeah i, I mean i was definitely gonna hop on the the fact that we have multiple bundlers like I think that from my perspective, I'm not, I don't necessarily need my bundler to be the fastest thing out there. I don't need my bundle to be the smallest. Like, I'm not really like looking for these things. Like, the thing that I want, I mean, it's the reason why I'm doing Ruby, right? Is I just want my life as a developer to be easier. And while I think that a couple of years ago, I was definitely like, look, we should all be learning Webpacker because that's what everybody's doing. And this is what modern JavaScript looks like. I mean, at the end of the day, Webpack kind of sucks the muck with if you have a complicated solution. And I think once, I don't know, I, I feel like I still have to try more bundlers to find one that isn't super painful because I still think they all kind of suck on complicated applications so far. But I'm kind of hoping that we end up with a nice, uncomplicated bundler, bundler in the end. But the fact that we can swap in and out whichever one we want, I think is the most important feature of all of this stuff. Yeah, for me, I think migrating from Webpacker, because the Driven Ruby application originally started, I think, as a Rails 4 project. Or it might have been right when Rails 5 was coming out, so I might have just use the master branch. But I did transition everything on Drift and Ruby over from handling the JavaScript assets in the old school way to using Webpacker. And one of the things that I was very intentional on was to leave Webpacker alone as much as possible. This was also back in the Bootstrap 4 days, so I did have to change the configuration to load jQuery in properly just so the application worked, uh, or Bootstrap 4 worked. But other than that, I pretty much left it alone. I did do a complete revamp of the UI, moving it from Bootstrap 4 to Bootstrap 5, and removing jQuery as much as possible. But I think even today, there's still remnants of some jQuery code in there, which I'm working on removing as well. But I think that kind of speaks to a point where, let's say if we were still back in the Bootstrap 4 days, so we brought jQuery in as a dependency of Bootstrap. Just because we brought jQuery in as a dependency of Bootstrap does not mean that we have to use jQuery all throughout our application now. We can keep it 
as a dependency of Bootstrap only. So when we are then going to migrate to Bootstrap 5, then we don't have to worry about going all throughout our application and remove references of jQuery just to deprecate Bootstrap 4 to go to 5. Otherwise, jQuery is going to kind of linger in your application for many, many years. And that's not a horrible thing because, I mean, honestly, I like jQuery. I like what it provides. But now with stimulus and with hotwire in the broadcast, turbo frame tags and turbo streams, I really don't have a need for it as much as I did back then. Yeah, I definitely want to just chime in in agreement and just say I've been doing that on all the projects that I've been working on, encouraging everybody to be like, you know, hey, let's drop jQuery. ES6 does a lot of the things that we, you know, used to use jQuery for. And now, since we've got a lot of those features, like it doesn't make as much sense and it has problems. So so a lot of projects that I've been involved in have, have moved on because of that. Not all. Not everybody's convinced. Some people love it. Yeah, one of the biggest perks from this transition that I'm going through has been turbo frame tags. I am so happy with them. At first, as I was starting out, it was a little bit confusing because I would as I was expecting something to reload or I was expecting it to do something, but it wasn't. Instead, the entire view just disappeared or I got a console error message saying that there wasn't a turbo frame tag in the expected response. But once I kind of got sorted through and became more familiar with turbo frame tags, it was so much nicer to work with, especially around broadcasting and doing DOM updates with the server side part of turbo. It really made everything so much nicer. So in the comments section on Drift and Ruby, one of the things that I was doing is whenever someone creates a comment, it would then do a broadcast with Action Cable to then show that comment. So you could have it come kind of just a real-time conversation with someone. But the problem with that is I am not strong at writing JavaScript or dealing with all the ins and outs of Action Cable. There's so much going on there that it can get really complicated really quickly. And so one of my efforts has been to get rid of all of the action cable channels that I've created to date entirely and solely rely on broadcasting through action cable via the turbo on the server side. And essentially, for those who haven't dug into Rails 7 too much, a turbo frame tag is part of Hotwire. And it is literally just a wrapper around a block of code. So in your views, you would have a turbo frame tag called uh, comment uh, or comments. And then whenever you click on a link within there, it's going to make a request back to your application server, render a view, send that HTML back over the wire, hence hot wire, and it will then look for that turbo frame tag name and then just replace that contents. How does that affect the load on the server, Dave? Have you tried, done any tests to see how the, um, the action cable backed mechanism that pushes updates scales or uses? So, just my butt dyno says it's a lot faster. And I say that with actual bit of proof because in a lot of these turbo frame tags before, if you were to reload the entire page because you clicked a link or something, it's going to have to load the head, the footers. It's going to have to load all the assets again. Even if you have them browser cached, that's still something that the server is sending back. My experience with turbo frame tags is actually really nice because when it's rendering out a page, it's not rendering out all the layouts. So instead, it's just rendering out the HTML for that particular action's view. So in a lot of ways, it's a lot lighter than not using it. And because the server doesn't have to do as much uh, ERB processing over to HTML to send that back over the wire, you're not only saving bandwidth, but you're also saving CPU cycles on the server. 
I'm going to get nitpicky here because I am a drifting, um, drifting uh, Ruby user. And uh, below the videos, the excellent videos, you have a free tab setup where you, it's got show notes. And there's also a really cool tab where you can click on the code without leaving the page. But there's also the comments. So you, you can switch between these three tabs without reloading your page, and it's really quick. But at what point have you drawn the line there on the turbo frame? Where have you actually said, this is a frame, this is... Okay, so the all of the show notes tab would be one turbo frame. The code tab, the contents of the code tab, is another turbo frame. And then in the comments section, because the comments has a lot more highly interactivity stuff going on. So each one of the emoji sections where you can upvote, downvote, or heart a comment is its own turbo frame tag. So however many comments you have, you have that many turbo frame tags as well. And that's simply so I am not broadcasting the entire list of comments when someone is just doing one small emoji. That way I can also target that frame tag when I'm broadcasting the updates. So I am just broadcasting the new count of hearts on a particular comment. And each comment itself is its own turbo frame tag. That's pretty cool. One of the areas where I think the single page apps do win is that after you've loaded a tab in various frameworks, it can instantly reload that. Like it's got a kind of shadow copy of the tab that you've just clicked on if you're switching between, for example, the code tab and the comments tab. Um, now, in theory, I suppose it could cache the content of that tab, but generally it doesn't in Hotwired. It has to make that request again. Have you seen anything that can do a kind of client-side caching of a particular turbo frame? On the local or on the server side? Uh, in, in the browser, so you can get that kind of really snappy single-page app feel. Okay. So I haven't messed around with any kind of local caching of the request, but I believe if you are making the exact same request, then it might do its own caching. Or, you know, at least the server would respond with something like a, was it 304 not modified? So that could speed up things. Mm. But MX, I haven't really done any of that, to be honest. But one thing I do do on there, where you do have the show notes, the code tab, and the comments tab, is all of that information is not rendered when someone visits the page. Only the show notes are. And the idea behind there is someone may never come to the code tab or the comments tab on a particular episode. So you are essentially rendering out a bunch of data, doing a lot of CPU cycles on the server side that someone will never see. So I think before it was all in one smash, it would load all the show notes, all the comments and that kind of stuff. And it's really just wasted resources doing that if someone's not going to see it. But if you can make it load after someone clicks on it and make it load quickly, then that gives a pretty snappy experience. It's kind of funny. This sounds a lot like the old hot module reload <laughs> that you would get from some of the JavaScript frameworks, right? Where it's just, you know, instead of reloading the whole app is only reloading the portions that you changed and then serving it through WebSockets. I'm curious, uh, is there some kind of like special deployment process for adopting the new Turbo? Or is it as long as you use one of these, you know, supported web servers, everything works as is? I haven't deployed Turbo yet. So I don't know for sure, but I would imagine that as long as you're running the Rails assets pre-compile, even if you are using JS bundling, it's going to have in have the necessary pieces to also compile those that you shouldn't have any issues. One of the really fun things uh, I like about upgrading to a new version of uh, Rails is you get inspired by things that are in it. So you see something. And you say, oh, that looks really cool. I'm going to build something with that. And uh, you end up learning uh, new stuff. Is there anything in Rails 7 where you've seen it? You've gone, oh, do you know what? I want to use that in, in a project. So I'm just going to kind of build something just to use this feature. I haven't seen that in Rails 7. 
But back in the day when I upgraded to Rails 6, action text and active storage were huge features that I was like, man, if I could just upgrade to that and then start using those, then that would be so awesome. Because before I was using Carrier Wave for any kind of images that you might put into a comment. And I was using Summernote for the WYSIWYG in the comments. And all the video uploads were also done through Carrier Wave. And Carrier Wave was great. It, was, it did the job. It was awesome. And Summernote was okay. I had some security issues around it where someone could do cross-site scripting and stuff. But I think out of all the WYSIWYGs that I played around with, every single one of them had that vulnerability. Unless if you specifically sanitize all of your HTML that you were loading into there. But that was the biggest change that I experienced with Active Storage and Action Text and moving over to those that I was very like giddy about in upgrading my Rails application as soon as possible. I have I have two items that I'm kind of really looking forward to. And number one on the list for me is the new active record relation load async. So you can asynchronously run some queries. I'm sure that it's wrought with some threading issues when you know somebody quickly navigates to a different page or you know redirects or something like that. But I'm kind of really excited to see kind of how that impacts the time to first paint or or, or one of these other metrics. And this num- number two on my list is the new action mailbox stuff. And mostly because I've done a lot of features and applications revol- involving some kind of like being able to handle a reply to a system email that's gone out, right? And you want to perform some action on the application and have the application be able to, you know, intercept that email and, and parse some data on it. And for a long time, you know, just like any of these other big features, a company like ThoughtBot had a, a gem called Gridler that you can use to handle this kind of thing. And now it's integrated into part of Rails. And I tried it out and it worked really well. I was able to, you know, make a test application and kind of forward some emails to it and be able to intercept them and you know, parse them out. So I'm, I'm pretty... It's kind of interesting to see what big features make it into Rails just over time. You know, and kind of going back to what you were saying, Dave, with using one of these attachment providers. I know I've used Shrine or obviously Paperclip, and now it's just part of the Rails ecosystem. And ha- having used, you know, Active Storage for a while now, it it just is a game changer when you have to upgrade stuff. It just works again as after you upgrade almost almost nothing changes. Time is of the essence when identifying and resolving issues in your software. And our friends at Raygun are here to help. Their brand new alerting feature is now available for crash reporting and real user monitoring to make sure you're quickly notified of the errors, crashes, and front-end performance issues that matter most to you and your business. Set thresholds for your alert based on an increase in error count, a spike in load time, or new issues introduced in the latest deployment along with custom filters that give you even greater control. Assign multiple users to ensure the right team members are notified, with alerts linked directly to the issue in Raygun, taking you to the root cause faster. Never miss another mission-critical issue in your software again. Try Raygun alerting today and create a world-class issue resolution workflow that gives you and your customer peace of mind. Visit raygun.com to learn more. Their simple usage plans start from as little as $4 per month, with unlimited apps and users. That's raygun.com to start your free 14-day trial. Yeah, and you know, that's really been a concern because I have upgraded this one application through many different versions of Rails is the maintainability. And from my experience, if I stick closer to the Rails core, then my application will be more maintainable. So the less things that I bring in, for example, RSpec is a testing library that I absolutely love. I think its syntax is awesome, and I really like it. However, because I was always upgrading my Rails application, kind of staying on the more bleeding edge, RSpec was always a problem. They had locked dependencies, so trying to upgrade to the new version of Rails always failed when I went to do the gem 
upgrade or the bundle update because RSpec was locked to a previous dependency that was newer in the new version of Rails. So one of the things I did was completely remove RSpec out of the entire application. I just deleted the spec folder and I rewrote everything in Minitest. That was a huge effort that if I was an employer, I would probably say, you know, so what? You just keep using our spec because, you know, we're not going to rewrite all of our tests just for that. But on a personal project, it was well worth it because my tests now still run. Half the time they're red, but they still, they're running and I'm able to upgrade. So, you know, it's just one of those things where, we make decisions today without thinking how it's going to affect us tomorrow or the many tomorrows later. And I think if we are in a situation like the earlier versions of Rails that did not have an upload mechanism, then you have to reach for something. You have to solve that business need. But if there is something that's included in Rails, then I would say we need to have a consideration of, do we want to use the conventions that Rails is providing us? Or do we think we're smarter than the super smart people that created this and do our own thing? So so I have a, a slightly different bent on it. I, I think I agree with you like on almost the whole, like the closer you stick to the Rails, right, the easier it is. But I think that everyone has like some, at least some small piece of your application, which you're just like, well, I don't like what Rails is providing by default. And and I think that's okay. It's just when you, it, for me, the issue comes if you have like one or two things that you decide to kind of go off the rails on, cool, that's fine. But when you start doing everything off the rails, then you then you end up in like terrible land. And at that point, you kind of have to question, like, why are you using Rails if you just want to break the defaults of everything? But I think somewhere in there, you know, we all have like a different amount of tolerance for that. So I think going off for like one or two things is perfectly valid and fine. But you need to be aware of those two things. And you need to like kind of understand that when upgrade time comes, like you're going to have to deal with the implications of that, whether that's you have to wait like a month for RSpec, for example, to update their dependencies. I don't think it takes them a month. They're usually pretty quick, but um, they're usually not on the bleeding edge either. Um, so you might have that issue or you might have like, uh, you know, one of those like larger gems. Uh, I'm thinking like back in the day, you know, when we had uh, basically like all of the file uploading gems or I guess the one that I was thinking of, uh, gosh, what was it? It was like MetaSearch. I don't remember. I think it, was it MetaSearch first before it became the other one? I don't remember. Whichever was the first one, that was always... Ransack. Yeah, I think I think Ransack was the second one. I don't remember. Whichever was the first one, first version of it, like, had some issues during upgrades. Uh, but things like that. When you have, like, invasive gems like that, you run into those kinds of issues. So, And I found the easiest way to... And this is more of a recent discovery in the past few years, the easiest way to mitigate around that while being able to bring in that functionality from a gym without the downside of now having it all intertwined in our application is to extract it out to a point where we are still using the gym and all of its glory, but we are creating our own wrappers around it. And by doing that, it makes it a lot easier to maintain. So just take like Rensac for instance. Before on Drift and Ruby, I actually was using Elasticsearch and Elasticsearch was awesome. And it was something that I was able to do episode searches on the description and everything. And it worked great. But one day, the Elasticsearch service blew up. I have no idea why. I have no idea what went wrong with it. It was a hosted service. So I assume that AWS had either did a silent upgrade or something that broke something. But that was a real cause of concern because I needed to get that functionality back up and working right away. So initially what I did was get it back up and running. But then I thought, I don't like having all of this Elasticsearch code all over my application. So I extracted it out into individual classes 
that was like an episode search, comment search, something like that, where then if I ever needed to switch to something different, all I had to do was change those few classes and then I could pop in something else. And I eventually had another issue with Elasticsearch and I did just that. I actually moved it over to Rensac, which was a lot easier to do now because I didn't have to go all throughout my application finding all these references and changing them. Instead, I just had to modify these few classes that I had written that was actually utilizing that gem's functionality. Yeah, you know, it's often you kind of lose track. We can say, you know, the closer you stay to Rails, the better. But what does that mean exactly? And I think you've kind of like pointed out one of the many cases, right? There are so many, <laughs> That the, the the more you think about it, the more you're like, why am I using something else or creating something new, right? And the first thing that comes to my mind is, uh, you know, performance enhancements. And you think of, uh, you know, just just looking at the specific RSpec versus mini test, there there are so many performance enhancements that are done by the Rails core team, improving you know, test runs for mini tests because all of Rails runs on mini tests, right? And, uh, you know, if you end up using that as an example in your own app, you know, just upgrading Rails can make your code run faster, you know, and not just for your application, but for your developers. And uh, it, it makes me wonder, I, I don't know, there's it's almost like, uh, you know, weighing, especially with all the new JavaScript stuff coming out, you know, and people weighing whether or not they want to use it or not, you know, it's only getting better. Uh, and and all of these things only get better. You know, at the, you know, Rails file storage, you know, active storage wasn't perfectly polished when it came out. But every single release, it gets better. And the more features... And the more that you use it, the more you get to take advantage of those. And it's kind of like, you know, you have, at this point, you know, thousands of people contributing to all these different projects. Um, you know, adopting some, it, it almost becomes a, you know, risk to adopt a, a different gem that's outside the Rails ecosystem. I mean, I'm wondering if there's uh, any other kind of good. Oh, I was just gonna say, I don't think you're wrong, right? You are taking on risk every gem that you add, right? But I mean, like, isn't that is I mean, in a lot of senses, I think that our job is to manage risk, right? We have to decide whether or not adding a gem gives us more benefits than the potential downsides that it brings. And I do I definitely agree with the sentiment that I think people express a lot, which is that people just like shove a ton of gems in their project without even thinking about why they're adding a gem. And and I don't think that's good. Um, I do think that every single time you put a gem in, you, you should think about whether it makes sense because you are taking on risk. You're, I mean, basically upgrades a great example of a place that's risky for you, right? So... You know, every time you're adding a gem, you're taking on some amount of risk, whether you're going to have to maintain this code base that isn't yours in the future because somebody stops maintaining it, whether or not you're going to have to manage something in the upgrade or wait on an upgrade. All of those are things you have to think about when you add a gem. At the same time, I'm also not I, I'm not in the camp of like, uh, don't add any gems to your project either. Right. So I think that. Uh, that's a little too extreme for me. I just think you have to be smart about which ones you add and you have to know what your risk is. And that's um, that's a judgment call. And I think that's part of our jobs. But I think that you do have to be careful. I think it's important to, you know, listen to other people's experiences and decide whether or not that makes sense to you. And I think for those of us that have been in the community a long time, I think we kind of implicitly do that. A lot of us are just like, you know what? Devise, I trust it. It's great. The people that take care of Devise are going to be here next year, and we just roll. But um, there are definitely things where that isn't true sometimes. I've got some bad news for you there, John, because that was one of the gems that DHH was talking about replacing with a Rails, a Rails core feature was specifically everyone's using Devise, right? Great. Or uh, the users. Maybe there will be a like a Rails core gem to do that. 
Yes, when when active authentication gets added to Rails, I will probably definitely check it out. I mean, I will definitely check it out. I'll probably use it. I mean, uh, I did switch off of the paperclip carrier wave refile train of gems to active storage, and I was happy there. Um, I've been mostly happy with those things over the years. <laughs> yeah, I think when we're talking about new applications and upgrading or, you know, using the new technology, it's almost a no-brainer. Like, oh, yeah, Active Storage is included. Let's use that. Action text, awesome. The new authentication thing, you know, it's great. But when we talk about existing applications and upgrading to that, then it becomes like, oh, okay, now do we really want to go through that effort? And it is an effort, no matter what we're talking about with Active Storage. What do you do with all your existing uploads? Do you migrate them over? Do you just kind of run the two gems side by side and have some kind of toggle switch on what to show? You know, I think that's where a lot of the places a, a lot of companies are at is that they've already developed a application. They are either adding new features or they're in maintenance mode. So is it worth the risk to upgrade? In my opinion, yes, because... As you mentioned, John, if a gem stops getting maintained and if there are security issues with that, well, then it's up to your team to then address those security issues or to migrate then when you have to instead of being proactively migrating to the newest stuff. And I think for the authentication stuff specifically for me, that would be a bit more of a harder decision. I would have to do a lot of testing to see, can I do this upgrade seamlessly without the user ever even knowing? And to me, that would be a successful upgrade. I really hate it when a company will say, hey, just so you know, we've made a change. You have to reset your password. You know, click the reset password link. You'll get a new password. You can then change it. I really hate that because it doesn't instill a lot of confidence in me as a user to say, now, did you guys really upgrade your authentication schemes or were you hacked and you're just using this as a cover? So in a lot of cases in my upgrade experience, affecting the end user as least as possible in a negative way is the ultimate goal. Because we're not really adding new functionality. We're trying to replace existing functionality. And that's a lot harder to do. And I think the authentication portion is going to be pretty difficult to do as well. But that's ultimately the end goal. And I think that getting manager buy-in for that, like, wait, you want to spend how many weeks working on something without providing anything new? It's a hard sell. And I would say your point about a gem going stale or no longer being maintained is a great ammunition to use to say, if there's ever a security issue here, then our application is at risk. We want to be proactive and move towards something that is more maintainable today, just so we don't have to have this as a fire where we're all hands on deck trying to do in the middle of the night. You know, with all, all these great features that are getting added kind of to the core or potentially being added, but part of me gets really worried, right? Like, <laughs> uh, if, if, for example, like a big feature gets integrated, like authentication, um, you know, it obviously introduces new bugs to the framework over time. And, I don't know if anybody here has had kind of a Rails bug or issue kind of sit in the queue, but it can take a long time even just to get looked at. <laughs> and so part of me is a little worried that like too much is coming to the framework. And I know you don't have to adopt it all, right? Like you don't have to buy into everything, but I don't I don't know. There are there are some drawbacks to having everything in such a, a large project that's being maintained by so many people. Do you do you think we should start voting out voting out gems and rails, Valentina, is that we want some kind of reality TV style um, <laughs> I'm a I'm a Rails gem, get me out of here thing. Which which gems are we to, which gem do you hate, Valentina? Which which is your hate your 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 least favorite gem in Rails? Come on. <laughs> 
<laughs> my least favorite. I don't really have one. I mean, I do have one of my biggest gripes with Rails in general. Um, it, it's kind of like it's all or nothing mentality as far as what's loaded and what's available, right? Like, I know I've said this before, but, you know, you open up a rake task and you either <laughs> inherit from application, which loads everything, or you you don't and you get nothing. <laughs> and so I think Rails could do a better job of being more modular in what's loaded, what's in the current context, and how how to isolate things a little better. So you're saying it's time for MERB 2? But at the same time... MERB 2. <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. At the same time, though, I think as long as the number of contributors on the Rails core team exceeds the number of developers on my team, <laughs> keeping you know those features, keep on adding into Rails, to, in my book, is a positive. I know authentication is one that has been discussed in the past and it's it got shut down many times in the past too, saying, you know, with the thought process of this is something that you're adding in one time and you forget about it. So it's not that big of a deal to reach for a gem-like device. Whereas action text, you're going to be bringing in action text into your comments, into your posts, into a lot of other things, reusing it many times. Same for file upload. So those features are, you know, uh, more likely to get added into the Rails score like we've seen. But it seems like authentication is now kind of becoming from a second-class citizen to a first-class citizen where, you know, okay, we can't ignore it anymore. It needs to be looked at and have some standards in place. How often do we let Twitter and Google and Facebook be our authentication mechanism? <laughs> yeah. I have a love-hate relationship with OAuth. If you only have one source, OAuth, then your application is basically at the mercy of that OAuth provider. And you should never have only authentication with Facebook or something like that. You should always have multiple options as well as, and this part's probably controversial, but you should also have your own authentication as a option. So someone can do OAuth or they can enter in their username and password. But as far as security goes, the more you can lean on someone else to take that liability, the better you are. So it's kind of a, a balance. But then what do you... How, how do you do that for Rails Rumble or something like that, right? <laughs> Where you only have 24 hours to get your app up? <laughs> Has secure password. Man. Has secure password. Yeah. That's true. That does yeah. work pretty well. I have played around with authentication from scratch. And I think it's safe to say that Rails has all the technology now to do it without reaching for a gem. Between the has secure password, has secure token... You can regenerate tokens. You don't need an authentication solution and you don't have to write your authentication from scratch. We still call it from scratch because we're not using a gem, but Rails has provided the basic necessities that we need to securely store the hashed passwords in our database and tokens and all that stuff, especially with the adder encrypted or the uh, whatever Rails 7 is calling the encrypted credentials that you can store into your application's database at re you know, encryption at rest. Yeah, I'm actually a big fan of the Adder encrypted stuff. Not going to lie. I've had a few different projects over the years that have used Adder encrypted. And I mean, we we literally had one of the authors of the uh, of of this feature for Rails on the show not too long ago and had me sold from day one. So that is definitely a feature that I'm super excited about. So has anybody else had an experience upgrading to Rails 7 yet? I, uh, I'm looking at it for a project, but I have yet to do so. And I just want to say, sometimes we get into this mindset of, well, if we're going to upgrade to Rails 7, we might as well just rewrite the whole application. And you don't have to. You know, no, rewriting the whole application is always the best answer, Dave. You know this. <laughs> it would be irresponsible for us to inform our viewers that rewriting for scratch is always the best solution. Always. Yeah. On smaller applications, I agree. 
No, it actually is easier. However, for existing applications that have had many, many years of life in production and that have grown past a point of no return as far as business logic complexity, it it really starts to become a bit more iffy. And so I think before you even consider a rewrite, I think there are many opportunities of optimization in our code that would make an upgrade a lot easier. And I would say first address that technical debt, whether it's reducing the number of gems you're using, whether you need to refactor a lot of the business logic, extracting it out of models and controllers into their own classes to perform whatever business function you need and to just clean up things a lot. Uh, reorganize code, uh, whether it's your JavaScript or your Ruby code, to make the upgrade easier. And I think those are the kind of things that people don't look at when they're talking about a rewrite. They just say, well, we just need a rewrite. It'll be faster. But would would you learn more about refactoring, writing tests, getting things the functionality to still work, and then go through the upgrade process? I think you learn a lot more doing that because you not only then see the mistakes that you've made in the past or your coworkers, whatever the situation, but you also learn a lot of these kind of decisions that were made back then. We understand why they were made, but if they had just thought about it a bit more or if they had just made a different decision, then we would be in a much better position today. And that kind of stuff, you can't really learn from doing a rewrite. You can to a degree because you'll be referring back to the old code, but you can't from the perspective that sometimes you have to sit in your own pool of spaghetti mess and bad code to really learn from your mistakes or the mistakes of others. I think we've hit almost everything that I was interested in. Do you... To anybody that has done the Rails 7 upgrade, is there any, like, if you were to, like, summarize, there were a few tips throughout this call, but if there were, like, like number one, maybe two tips that you would say to watch out for during this upgrade, this one seems pretty benign to me for Rails upgrades. Is, is that sort of been y'all's experience? And do you have, like, a couple, like, maybe, like, most important tips, I would say? I think you, Dave, you and Valentino are the only two that have done this, I think. Right, Luke? Yeah. I would say my most important tip is don't try to do it all at once. With Rail 7 comes the new way of handling your assets. And we also have Hotwire now in place of UJS and Turbolinks. So if you're going to go through this effort, do one thing at a time. You can choose which path you want to go, like which thing you want to handle first. But, you know, even currently, I made the mistake of trying to replace UJS and Turbolinks at the same time. I essentially doubled the amount of work required for this feature. Instead of just replacing UJS with uh, the Turbo frames or getting rid of Turbolinks and place it Turbo, and then going back and replacing and getting rid of UJS. So just do one thing at a time. You have the Rail 7 upgrade. You have to make sure your tests are still passing. You have the removal of Turbo Links in place of Turbo. You have removing UJS, adding in stimulus controllers or whatever needed at those various points. You also have the move from Webpacker to Webpack or with JS bundling. That's a whole nother step. If you then want to experiment with import maps instead of ES build, I would still move from Webpacker to ES build first because you are cleaning up a lot of your Webpacker code and then move over to import maps. You know, so there's like really four or five really big steps there that can be broken out in and deployed separately. They don't all have to be done right away. Yeah, I'd agree with all those points. Uh, another point I'd add is if you're not going the traditional Rails way when you generated the app and you have only, you know, select libraries that you're using. I personally had to open up the <laughs> the template files on the Rails repo just to make sure I wasn't not including certain things. Like for some apps, I had uh, not used Action Cable as an example. 
And there's a lot of setup code that gets, you know, kind of re-added when you add or run the uh, Rails upgrade command, which is great, by the way. Use the Rails upgrade command. And uh, yeah, a lot of, uh, there. there's just so much new, <laughs> I think, you know, with the action mailbox and all of the new JavaScript stuff that uh, if you don't need it, you would be adding a ton. Yeah, I'd also say uh, watch out for Zeitberg because uh, you can't dodge Zeitberg now in classic mode. So if you're Zeitberg, you will need to ship if you're doing uh, Rails 7. Yep, all good tips. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. All right. Well, let's move on to picks. Luke, you want to start us off? I would like to start us off. My first pick is my 3D printer. I've been doing loads of 3D printing this week. In fact, my 3D printer had a wobbly nozzle. So you might think I shouldn't pick it if it's the 3D printer's got a wobbly nozzle. You wouldn't believe the kind of prints you get with a wobbly nozzle. But the reason I had a wobbly nozzle is because it's just so easy to take it apart and mess with it. So my first pick is my printer printer. It's always massive wait time on them in Europe. Maybe they're more readily available in the States. And my second uh, 3D printing related pick is Tinkercad. Tinkercad's amazing. I love Tinkercad. I spent hours in Tinkercad this week making part. Tinkercad, fantastic. Yeah. With the 3D printer, I recently, mid-year last year, got the Creality CR10 Smart. And it was really awesome. But I found it was stuttering a lot. So it would be printing and then it, it would just what? stop. Stuttering a lot? What are you trying to say, Dave? <laughs> Stutters are bad. Loops and all. <laughs> <laughs> so what I ended up doing was rerouting the USB cable that was off of the built-in board into a Raspberry Pi using OctoPrint. And OctoPrint on the Raspberry Pi has a lot more CPU power than the little crappy onboard thing that they provided. So it completely fixed the issue. My prints are beautiful now. And I've been playing around with my 3D printer with a Hatchbox Glow PLA filament. It is awesome. And my daughter, funny short story, she loves doing little tea parties right before bed. But she said she needed a hammer for her tea party. You know, no idea. Go figure. But so I 3D printed her a little glow-in-the-dark hammer for her tea parties that she has. So, yeah, 3D printers are awesome. Valentino, do you have any picks? Sure. One article I came across was uh, this kind of really great developer conference agenda. It kind of just outlines a bunch, bunch of conferences that are coming up and they're CFP due dates and whatnot. Definitely check it out if you're interested in the conferencing world this year, if if COVID ever takes a downturn. And my other pick would be, I have this great LCD panel that I got. It's, uh, I don't know, maybe a foot by six inches or something like that. And it comes with a, a board that you can plug audio cables into, and it'll automatically give you like an, a real-time equalizer I'm looking forward to putting that together this weekend. But unfortunately, it com- it requires two power supplies. So I'm waiting on parts still. Hopefully they come in time. That's it for me. And John, do you have any picks? Wow. So I definitely want to, do, I mean, shoot, just do another plus one for Rails diff or whatever for every single upgrade. That's uh, That's my first pick. But for my second pick this week, I ended up traveling at, kind of a little bit the last minute or whatever to my uh, in-laws or whatever. And uh, so just kind of staying here or whatever. But uh, one of the things that I'm doing while I'm here is I'm putting together a computer for my father-in-law because he we had we had a bad experience last time getting him, you know, like a pre-built machine. So 
we're just going to build them computers. So I used to do this all the time, but man, Amazon has really picked up the pace on like parts. Holy cow. Um, I used to buy pretty much everything from Newegg, but uh, definitely this time I bought a lot of stuff from Amazon. So I'm just gonna, maybe I, maybe I don't like, yeah, I, don't, I don't know that Amazon needs like free love, but if you are uh, building a computer, Amazon definitely has a crap ton of parts. And then as far as like helping you to put that thing together, I definitely going to recommend PC Part Picker. I've used them for a long time and they're like really good at helping you like, even if you've made a lot of builds, they're good at helping you just organize, making sure that you've got all the pieces to it and things like that. So that's what I got. Awesome. What's yeah. PC Part Picker? It's a website that allows you to select components like motherboard, yep. CPU, cooling, RAM. It'll find the vendor that has the cheapest parts, but it also will uh, show compatibility. So if you are trying to pick a new age motherboard, but then select DDR2 RAM, it'll throw like yell at you saying like you've got incompatible parts. Yep, you can also PC part picker PC Yep, you can you can filter like the vendors that you're willing to buy from things like that too. So you don't always have to buy from disreputable vendors if you if you're like I don't know this vendor and I don't trust them. You can filter them out. Things like that. So I'll jump in with a few picks. My first pick is a right angle USB-C extension adapter. So the reason why I like this thing so much is because I have this little tiny 14 inch monitor that kind of sits above my bigger monitors that I'll just put ancillary stuff up there. And it was coming out of the side. So the USB-C cable was coming out of the side. And I really didn't like that because every time I pulled down my microphone that's on a boom arm, it would hit that cable and kind of get in the way. Now it's basically just running flush up with the monitor. So those are really awesome. And my second pick is this little monitor. It's an Asus. It's a little 14-inch monitor. It is awesome. It's USB-C powered, so it's bus powered. And it will it uses whatever it's called with the display port where the USB-C input it'll deliver power, but then also display. If you plug it directly into your MacBook Pro or something, then it'll use the native or the built-in GPU drivers and everything to run the monitor. Or if you connect it to a USB-C or USB plug, so not a DisplayPort or Thunderbolt, then it'll you can use the DisplayLink adapter to be able to drive the monitor. It does require CPU cycles, but if you're something like a M1 user with the original M1 that you can only have one external display, this is an easy way to add an external display, an additional one through that uh, display link. So that's my second pick. All right. Well, that's it for picks. It was good talking to you all about Rails 7. Absolutely. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to making more Rails 7 apps. Yeah, I'm just, I'm still waiting for you to add live streaming and super chats to a Drifting Ruby, Dave. That's what I really want. I want <laughs> Drifting Ruby with Turbo Super Chats. Isn't Super Chats a YouTube thing? For like monetization or whatever that yeah so so what you do is uh it's, it's a young people thing it's on twitch too all right well i'll talk to everyone later take care everybody bandwidth for this segment is provided by cashfly the world's fastest cdn deliver your content fast with cashfly visit c-a-c-h-e-f-l-y.com to learn more